There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, welcome to And The Writer Is. I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. What do musicians Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, Darius Rucker, Harry Connick Jr., John Baptiste, and Gladys Knight have in common? They're all sharing their love of food and Southern culture on the Biscuits and Jam podcast, hosted by Southern Living Editor-in-Chief, Sid Evans. In the South, talking about food is personal. It's a way of sharing a part of your history, your family, your culture, and yourself. Join Sid and his all-star guests as they talk about cherished memories and traditions, the family meals they still think about, and their favorite places to eat on the road. There's a new episode every Tuesday, so listen and subscribe to Biscuits and Jam wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. With over 15 million singles sold worldwide and three US RAAA certified platinum records, these fine gentlemen have made their mark writing and performing global smashes. These are the kind of smashes that make everyone move their hips at a party. But that's not all. They've annihilated charts as songwriters for other artists, as well as proving that, uh, that as well doesn't make sense. They've annihilated charts as songwriters for other artists as well, proving that crafting hits doesn't happen by accident. All the way from Boulder, Colorado, this duo has deep roots in the music community because people in the music community genuinely like them. <laughs> and the writer is our Sean Foreman and Nat Motti from 303. Oh, Woo! thank you for that lovely intro. Nailed it. About half of it is true, but that's super nice, man. I'm probably, maybe we should just keep the edit in there of me screwing it up so people can really see what, you know, behind the curtain. The, the magic behind, uh, between two ferns over here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you guys are, you're between one fern. Yeah, why, we're between one piano. <laughs> why, do, why do you put the plant, one of the plants on the other side so you guys can live the Man, dream? we were on a time crunch. I wanted to kind of dress it up for you guys because, you know, you guys are a big deal, but um, we did what we could, I guess. 
Sorry. Do you guys do you guys do a lot of interviews and things from this spot? Because it looks like you've planned this. This is the first time. My wife is a is a journalist. She's an entertainment news host, and so she's been working from here. Oh well, that's cool. We do that's a lot cool. of work from because uh, we we like to go full circle. We do a lot of work from Nat's basement, My just basement. like we used to do back in the day. That's how when we Sean's started. dropping bars down there. One time he brought his dog Sylvie, and I don't know, very out of character for Sylvie, but she dropped about like a hot six inches of turd down there, which was cool. <laughs> <laughs> she did she did drop a dookie on that carpet, but I'm sorry about that. That's fine, dude. Look, I've man, it happens. Um, dogs do that. Okay, so. Let's start from the beginning. Um, uh, you guys are you guys are are Sean and Nat. And uh, Sean, you were born uh, after Nat was born, um, <laughs> but you guys have different parents and different lives. So, uh, Nat, I suppose you go first. Um, are you born in? You're born and raised Boulder, also, right? It's so born in a little place I like to call Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, oh. Shout out. Uh, but moved here when I was three. My, my dad is a professor. Um, he's, he's American, but he's a professor of French literature. Um, and he was teaching at the University of Nebraska, got the job here at, at CU at the University of Colorado. And so we moved here when I was a little kid. And yeah, I grew up here. Um, my mom is originally French from France. And so we kind of would spend our summers going out to France um, and hanging with a huge family out there and grew up bilingual and and yeah, I mean Boulder's Boulder's a great town, man. And we were just talking about it before we started recording, and it's uh, it's been a great place for us to grow up and to nurture our music. And do you still speak French? Yeah, yeah, I hold citizenship and speak French and kind of all do the good you, stuff. Did you listen to a lot of French music? You know, I didn't because uh, I inherited like I think we kind of both have this in common. We inherited a lot of our parents. Or, you know, our parents grew up in the in the late 60s and and kind of without all the british invasion my dad was at woodstock and and his music you know tastes are so varied from classical and jazz to all the british invasion stuff blues and and folk and everything in between and so he he was kind of like predisposed to not dig french pop music so it's only been recently that i've kind of been kind of delving into it but uh i, I don't know i think um I guess, and my mom is less less musical and less kind of her family is less focused on. They're all doctors out there, and so they're a little bit more scientific than than creative on the music side. But uh, but I should I should listen to more. Um, there's some really good French music. I mean, yeah, you, you know, even just Serge Gainsbourg or some yep. of these people who have these. There's so many cool. There's so much cool music that. You know, it feels very Austin Powersy that era. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, there's good modern stuff too. Like even you know, when I was an adolescent growing up, there's great rap music and hip hop music coming out of of France and Cyan Supercrew and and NTC and and kind of. I mean, a lot of people know MC Solar. That's kind of on the more popular side, but it's great. I mean, it's it's a language that you can really do a lot of things with ryth- rhythmically and, and melodically. Sean Foreman. Yes, Ross. Uh, it's good to see you, man, dude. We like, I haven't seen you in so long. How are you? I know it's wild. Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm doing all right. I'm kind of, uh, I'm here in Boulder, but, uh, I've been driving back and forth like caravan style with my dog, just like in Wait, LA. Is your, do- your um, dog's driving behind you? <laughs> no, yeah, his dog's yeah. driving the car. Yeah, my do- <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's good. Cause, uh, you know, I got one of those, uh, newer cars that my dog can drive and I can take a nap. <laughs> so it's easy, but, Perfect. um, yeah, no, I've been back and forth and just, you know, doing like Nat and I making music, staying creative, but, uh, obviously just, 
doing our best out here during this year and just figuring stuff out, man, trying to stay creative. Um, so you are, let's do a little bit of your story too. Um, mm-hmm. are you guys the same school year? Cause you guys are, no, you're a year apart, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually I was, I was young for my grade anyways. Uh, yeah. Nat was 2002 graduated high school. I was 03. Is that right? Yep. Um, and which is crazy now. Actually, I this is such a departure, but I was driving down the street the other day here in Boulder and there's a ultimate Frisbee game going on as there always is in Boulder. Um, and I was like, oh, those kids look like high school kids. And I pulled over and I looked and it was the Fairview High School team. And I was like, oh man, I start, I like co-started that squad. Like that was the first year I started the club team of ultimate Frisbee. And then I uh, after they were done, I kind of approached the coach. I was just like, Hey, like I had to like, I was like, listen, I started this program and I, it's amazing. You guys are so good. It's come so many lengths. And she's like, Oh yeah. When did you start it? And I like looked at, I like thought, and I'm like 18 years ago. I'm like, that is, ins- these kids weren't even born yet. And they're out here on this field playing. So yeah, we're getting up there, but yeah, we graduated a year apart. Um, and we met, yeah, we, it's funny because... Shout out to public access television first <laughs> for connecting us. Yeah, Nat's, Nat's six, eight, um, you know, for anyone listening to this, he's a, he's a tall guy. And uh, we both kind of came up like, you know, we live in this university town and uh, there is a local radio station, 1190, and they had a hip hop bass mentalism. And they'd bring in rap shows, like underground rap shows. They'd bring in, um, you know, anything from like Jurassic 5 to Atmosphere to Aesop Rock, Sage Francis. And I, Nat and I happened to both be into that. And also like we both played basketball. So the only times I really saw him, I never knew him personally before college, but I definitely like I'd be behind him at a show and be like, this tall guy really needs to not stand in the front row. Uh, so I think you Boulder is a small town, even though we went to different high schools, like rival high schools, you kind of you, you see someone around so that. Yeah, you know, I was born here, Boulder Community Hospital. And uh, yeah, I've been here, went to college here, uh, was here for pretty much 21 years straight before I moved. Did did your parents do music? Yeah. So, I mean, my dad, he moved out here um, sort of because my uncle, his brother lived out here, but also because my dad was a deadhead from South Dakota and needed to get away from Brookings, South Dakota. So he, I'm wearing my Grateful Dead socks oh, actually. Man. So in uh, honor of- You don't have that uh, Olive Garden, uh, Olive Garden dead. Oh, oh there, there it is. is. <laughs> I literally I'm just, I'm, we we had a we had a conversation um yesterday yeah. I was talking to Jared Sharf who's I don't know if you know Sharf he's the you know he's play guitar for SNL he's like he's yeah. now produces like Brockhampton a bunch of cool shit and we were talking about Grateful Dead and we we're like why isn't there a band like Grateful Dead anymore and what is it like are, will there ever be a jam band that that works again and both you guys having hippie parents like you know before we get into the music you guys do why I, will there ever be a band that just plays music for 3 hours in a night and just I like mean, there's funny, there are, talking to yeah people yeah, on like Boulder. my neighbor Drew shout out to <laughs> shout out Drew, to Drew your answer is Drew next door should we He's grab got him? a jam band and they they jam you know and a Boulder is like definitely a crunchy scene i mean it's it's funny like a lot of that in Colorado has transitioned to kind of like more jammy electronic acts and 
and more jammy hip hop acts and stuff. But it's true, like at least on the grand scale, like that. Yeah, it's I, I guess what's what's the closest, like Dawes or something. I don't know. No, like, well, if I there mean, was Mars just, Volta kind of tapped into a weird thing for a while, um, and they disappeared. But there's like a cult following. There's just not enough them. acid anymore, man. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's the is part Shorted. of it is like the kind of drugs that people do now is different than the kind of drugs people did then. Maybe there's something that something yeah. to that. I'll tell you one thing though, just because we're maybe in a different sort. Because even the Grateful Dead commercially, like Touch of Grey was their biggest song, and they weren't super commercially like a Billboard, you know, type singles driven band or anything. And I think. It's funny because living in Colorado, we're looking at this right now because we're actually uh, we're booked to play a show at, at Red Rocks here, the amphitheater in June. And it's like, you know, this Red Rocks, you will read like someone will sell out Red Rocks for a week that you that maybe me and Nat don't we've never heard of this person before or this band. So it's like alive and well in certain scenes, you know, like certain atmospheres with like they'll sell out certain areas. Like Boston is super crunchy. They love jam bands. So there might be that undercurrent, but there'll be never be a band like the Grateful Dead. There'll never be a band like the band. Like I just think there's things that just kind of put their name on the wall and it's like, you know, you can't you can't copy that, you know. Um, both you guys were into, like you're saying, atmosphere and, and Jurassic five and all this stuff that, that makes a lot of sense considering where the kind of music you guys started with. Um, but did you guys have any, any formal training at all? There's a piano behind you. So like when I think of, (laughs) when I think of a piano, you know, I just like it, it, it doesn't invoke you know, Jurassic Five, <laughs> Charlie Tuna. No, I mean, on on my side, I I grew up. I took piano lessons when I was a little kid, um, and after a few years, just didn't like the the pure kind of re- practice of it. Um, and for some reason, didn't click. I'm kicking myself now because it would have been awesome to keep. I'm sure, like all of us, like working in the music business and, and producing and writing, like it's it's such a useful tool. Um, and I can bang my way around it now. But I, I stopped taking lessons and then came to guitar. My dad had always played guitar growing up and we just kind of played as a family and played around. And that was, I learned organically, never never taken any lessons again, probably should, but can, can play guitar. And then what kind of was the bridge for me into producing and producing, you know, all of our music over the years was getting some turntables. And when I was 18 as a graduation present and really getting into like, first off kind of turntablism and spinning records and also scratching and, and stuff like that. And then starting to record that. Um, <laughs> but I had like a copy of my mom got a CD burner back in the day. We were like one of the first families with a CD burner. So I'd be slanging mixtapes and, and kind of not of our own music, but of, of other stuff. And then it came with a, a free copy and it's actually what we use for some of the finished vocals on on some of our early records it was called acid music actually to come back to oh yeah a- sure. acid but yeah and that was yeah. like the first daw i ever had i didn't understand i would like record my turntables and sample from my turntables but i didn't understand that you could put things on a grid and like actually have them follow tempo so all my first beats were just i guess that's the shuffle that you look for these days in some genres of music but uh but yeah, that was the bridge for me, and and for me, I guess it's it's just kind of a an example, a broader example of just that that element of fun and, and creative creative fun and just kind of creative flow being you know what's what's fun about learning something and and learning 
instruments and learning how to produce music and learning how to write music was all based around that, that just having fun with either on your own or with homies or, you know, with, with people to this day, we, we do a lot of songwriting sessions, I'm sure as, as you do. And as Joe does where it's a blind date and you've never met the person you got, you know, you got a few hours to write, but you kind of just try to catch a, a, a good vibe and have fun and, and work on music. And so that's kind of where my quote unquote training comes from. It's kind of crazy because Nat, after all these years, he only knows really one song on piano. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was playing it. Hold on. Let me, let me, let me see if I can get it. I think it's here. Hold on. There it is. There it is. That's beautiful. No, I was actually, I forgot how to play it, but I was playing My House <laughs> earlier. I just, I, I, yeah, I, when I walked in his house, he was playing My House. <laughs> I was just like, that's cool. Yeah, Ross would love if you played that for him. I I'm just sure. uh, was reminded that you wrote that, man. It's a great song. It's a banger. That is, uh, that is a fact. Um, so, uh, Acid, uh, the, the program is anybody who's old enough to remember that that really is kind of like the first thing where you could click in samples and it and it and it was like working on a grid and and it, it sort of is the first kind of way people produced kind um, of a precursor to ableton too because it was like cheap i remember we got it for free it came with the thing and it was like user friendly yeah i mean it was user friendly enough that you know two guys who are athletes started making music together like how did are you, are you talking about us or call yeah. it or <laughs> I know I was I was assuming you two I mean I I guess here's the thing is like how do how do two guys who are musicians or who are athletes who are doing music on the side what kind of what situation are you in where one of you is like you know let's make music together how did how did it go from you two knowing of each other and not blocking your view. Well, we were sitting beside each other in a physics class, and I, I kind of it was. This was at the university. I was a sophomore. He was a, a freshman. Uh-huh. In physics, twenty ten, and I dropped my pen. <laughs> it was like a romantic comment. Yeah, we both went down to grab it, and our hands touched, oh. and we we're like, "Oh, yeah, this guy." Oh, hey. No, uh, you know, I, I think. Uh, I kind of grew up in, we grew up listening to the same music, like we were talking about with the hip hop stuff, but, um, on the same pre like side while he was sort of like on the turntables and stuff, like I was in the bedroom next to my older brother who also is very into, uh, you know, turntablism, uh, scratching his friends would come over, they'd put on instrumentals and freestyle and stuff. And like, to me, I was like, I want to be good enough to get in that room. Like I want to be in there and like rap battle his friends. So I just spent time like writing raps. I actually like, I was way more, uh, sort of raw in the sense of like what I was recording on. I had the, I had the tape recorder with the left side of the headphones, like as the, as the mic, like, and you would just like, I'd play, the song in the background like the instrumental and I'd rap into the headphone and that was like how I did like the first songs that I did and uh, I remember one of my I saved up money and bought a boss sampler Um, it was just like the one that has like eight pads or something on it and I would just sample in like I would go to there's this record store called Bart's uh, CD seller and on the second story there was just, uh, you could go through records and listen to them and I would just dig for like samples and stuff. And actually, funny enough, the guy who worked up there, this guy DJ Vajra ended up winning the DMC's like 
a million times to the point where they disqualified him and he had to become a judge. Like, but he was the guy up there. And like, it's just like a weird microcosm of like Boulder. And I would dig up there, get samples. And then me and my friends were just freestyle. So instead of like playing the piano, guitar, stuff like that, that I picked up later, I would just spend time freestyling. And like, it wasn't a thought about like, this is means to an ends. Like, well, it kind of right. was. Cause I was like, I just want to be better than my brother. <laughs> And uh, you guys ended up battling. I I, yeah. I went to a, it was the players club. Yeah, the players club. There's a local <laughs> hip hop battle, and in the final, yeah, my brother and I ended up uh, going up different sides of the uh, the tournament to face each other in the finals. And it was like it got nasty. He was saying that you should have been aborted and stuff, and you guys have the same mom. It was like. With, like literally in the rap battle you guys are that vicious yeah it's, man. i mean battles obviously like the air it's changed a lot too like then it was like the whole idea was like not you can't pre-write like you can of course you have like things like you get good enough where you like sort of like get punchlines in your head that you work in about the person in front of you but it was vicious man like i mean obviously i mean there were definitely things that i think at the time we're certainly not PC and stuff like that to say. And uh, I think, you know, we tried, I think especially me and my brother, we tried to stay off that side of things, but we definitely like you dig into the person. And when it's your brother, like <laughs> it's, I mean, the gloves are off. Like he's saying all these things about me, but I ended up winning. Do you remember? Do you remember any of hour. it? Yeah, I was in, I was like pretty much front row. Back in the day, man, we'd go to those hip hop shows and just your hip hop arm, man. Oh, it was so strong after a full set. You know? <laughs> your right shoulder. You could, you should have used that to, for what yeah. was it? Like, you know, for whatever frisbee, you have like a really strong shoulder for. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, now I'm paying for it with arthritis in the hip hop arm, hip hop elbow. That's like tennis elbow, but you know, hip hop elbow. Um, <laughs> do you remember any of it, Sean? I mean, you're one of the more witty people I've ever met, and, and uh, it's so fun. Sense. It's so fun writing with you because you look at lyrics from the perspective of somebody who freestyles, not from, um, you know, I'm not, you're not in a pop session trying to write, you know. Uh, the same song that the guy in the next studio is writing. You're always going to write something that's a little left of center because, you know, that's you. Do you think of yourself, like, did you become more witty because of your freestyling or was that just a good outlet for someone who has your wit? I think, honestly, I think that is my strong suit. Like, I'm not going to go into the studio and out sing probably some of the top liners in there. I... You know, lyrically, I mean, yeah, I went to college for English literature and stuff like that. And I, I like to creative write generally, but it all came from hip hop. Like I was, you know, I was in my in high school with a notepad sitting there with like Cheeto powder all over the pages from like <laughs> eating spicy Cheetos, just like beatboxing. And kids are like, man, this kid is annoying. I'm like, wait, you'll see. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the the freestyle is like, I think that is my greatest tool because I think in the moment I can spin, you know, whether it's like creative rhymes or just like really sort of, I don't know, just like it's pull it out. It's like a Rolodex in my brain that I just took a long time developing. And it wasn't for, again, like it wasn't like I was sitting there playing scales being like, I need to do this so I can shred. It was like, it was, it was just fun to do like be in the studio and yeah I think it's funny because I think even the first time I worked with Joe um in the studio I think the song we might have wrote a song called Milk Money and it was just yes. like 
That's oh yeah, great. Yeah, th- yeah. It's just funny because it's like I, I think what you said. It's like I don't overthink. I think sometimes like lyrics and stuff like that. And even though it might not go to the right. <laughs> home or find a home at all it's like at least I know like it's not gonna be right down the pipe like another I don't know just like uh endless love or something no but that's that shows in the songs that you guys that that you guys have written that have really reacted they've reacted because of those moments that clearly aren't written by somebody who is sitting in a studio all day who's never had that experience so it's not like it's really evident that that it works when you nail it and you nail it and then when you don't like other people just don't get it because they're <laughs> not they they just they they're expecting to hear the same old love song uh, you know so they that's their yeah, problem man. and it's something that i feel i mean on my side like i feel so thankful for because obviously you know we're we're friends first and foremost and then our working relationship over these years i that's one of the things i admire most about sean and his songwriting is that like it it does come from a place of that's fun, that's witty, that's different, and that's especially like like we were talking about that freestyle kind of upbringing and that freestyle learning of how to write songs. It's fast and it's like, and it's not too usually not too overthought and not too overconceived. And at the same sense, I think he's got an ability to write things that are substantive while being all of those things, while being catchy, while being interesting while being you know whether it be oh, funny or sad you. or whatever and gassing me up yeah man Keep gassing me up guys it's been Come a great thank you. Well, beautiful friendship i mean last thing i'll say in um to continue to gas you up um that feels like a weird thing to say to somebody but i don't think i've actually ever up. said that <laughs> i'm gonna keep gassing you up it just go. feels really weird <laughs> but weird. i like i was a uh, I studied jazz vocals that was my instrument in college and and so you had to do you learned to scat and solo and it's really weird except for the fact that you never run out of ideas once you get into it because you're constantly coming up with a new phrase and a new phrase and you're like well no let's beat that phrase or what's this where do you go next in the conversation and how do you focus on this phrase and then that phrase and you know and lyrically to be somebody who freestyles whether they know that they're doing that or not it's a it's a lyrical solo i mean it's just it's just a solo that whereas you have great drummers and great you know guitarists and bassists and trumpet players and sax players and all these people can solo melodies it's not that different than being able to solo lyrics it's just that's pretty cool that that's your instrument but as a skill set, do you have to continue to work on it, or is it something that you just now have embedded in you? Like if I uh, asked you to freestyle yeah. right now, could you freestyle right now? I mean, it's different. Yeah, I could. I think it's different though because a there's a couple layers to it. I just want to <laughs> I want to answer these questions, and I see that in you, Ross. Like working with you, and obviously the first time I met you was at your show. I think uh, in Los Feliz at Wrong Man. Uh, it was remember it was just like I think it was like the second time you were like going through you had your residency there and it was just like I remember watching that and I was like this is this sounds like the you know like you came up with it the same way that you know like it felt very uh like I don't know like I know obviously it took you you probably mold over every single lyric of that a million times but it felt like it came out the same way like a freestyle like it, it really felt like it flowed that way and I that's why I loved it and I think for me I, it is something that's always there. I think if you grow up playing the piano in those early stages or playing guitar, like you'll always have a sense of it, but you do need to like return to it to be 
confident in it. Like, you know, like I, it's, it's second nature to me, but also I got a little jaded about the whole thing because it was something I did pretty seriously. I mean, even though it was for fun, I still went to battles and I would do these things and I wouldn't just be like, you know, like the guy at the party who was just like, let me just take over this party and just rap. Like mm, we did that a couple of times. Well, it became, yeah, of course it became <laughs> that. But then now I, I kind of got jaded by it because I think maybe I had that phase where I was like, like, you know, especially being in a college town, it was like everybody is freestyling. And I just like, I I think I got like, maybe not, I don't know if I felt like maybe I was above it or like, it just felt really like, you'd see that group of like five people freestyling. It didn't feel as like, uh, as special anymore in a lot of ways. Like, I, like, I feel like when I was doing it, it would be like a guy pulling out a guitar in a party in the middle of a party and just like playing a song. And sometimes it's cool, but if you're just doing it, sometimes you're like, who's that guy? Like, why is that guy always at this party? It's like when they do it in movies, it's always like like old school movies and someone sits down and plays the piano. And you're like, oh, that's so sick. I, I wish I was there. And then when you actually see someone do it at a party, you're like, I would argue a piano is, oh, for some reason, a piano, if you're good at the piano, you're oh i think you could play in any atmosphere yeah. it's great and then sometimes you catch yourself guitar. like with a group of friends like playing and singing songs you're like what am i doing I the only yeah. thing you the, what you want is you want to be at a party at that age what you want is you um you want to be at a party where the guy just starts it who it really annoys you yes but you know that you have the skill set to just like I did that win and that I, part yeah. so, you, so you hope that some guy pulls out that guitar or sits at a piano or starts rapping or whatever it is and you just wait until everyone's like hey sean dude we were known to cool. show up at some college parties and like all of a sudden i would start beatboxing and like because there would be another dude rapping and then i would start beatboxing because i knew that my boy could battle yeah him. and it wasn't like i would have friends tell me after like that got really kind of crazy kind of like, dark man. yeah like like that's the thing it's like it was like <laughs> it was like a power in a way because like it might be lighthearted and fun and then it would turn into a battle and then i've literally my older brother and i have had to leave parties because we've been threatened like to get like to get beat up up a guy was like i'm gonna go to my car and get my knife or something like that and we were just like we've had situations it's just like okay this is ridiculous like, so music can be dangerous so handle it <laughs> handle it with care guys um so what where where is it where you start where you realize were you just beatboxing now nah, were you just beatboxing at a party and sean jumps in and you're like all right let's let's yeah, do this I mean, like what I, what is I, the real story revisionist history i would like to think that it was like somebody would be kind of like pseudo rapping at a party even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And then I would beatbox. And then the, Sean and the other person would start battling and I would beatbox. It ha- I mean, it did happen. I think it- that's how it happened mostly. Yeah, and I think for the most part, it was fine. And I think it was fun and lighthearted. But for some reason, it wasn't, a lot of them weren't just ciphers. Like, and it was probably my fault because <laughs> I'm very used to the battle element of it. It's not just like, and by party, we mean it was just me and my boy, Sean, and, and my basement. <laughs> and my parents. Yeah. I would his parents' my house dad. on his boss digital 12 track. No, we had that. There was a party house up on the hill where that basement, they had a whole PA set up and mics and stuff. And it was just yeah. like, I mean, it was fun, man. It was humble beginnings with all that. And then Nat and I got a, a little bit more into, like in college, I think we were into hip hop, but we also started like, we were like into block party. And like, uh, speaking of uh, uh, French like bands or music, like Justice, I think changed a lot of stuff for us. Cause we were like, this is so sick. Like we want to, we want to play like, it's kind of like this indie dance. The Faint was a big inspiration for us. Uh, I think they're out of Nebraska too, but they were, they just like melded a lot of uh, like electronic, but also like, uh, you know, live music. And we just were like, we want to emulate this show on stage that has this energy, but also like melds like different things. So we were in, we were at a couple different projects. We had our rap like backpacker project, which was called Eight Hour Orphans. And we did like nap produced on that uh and he also like scratched and then my buddy Devin and I were we we rapped although 303 in a weird way kind of came out of that and in, in a strange way because we had a secret track on our last album that that was uh called Sate Em Up Sate em Up and it was like about seven minutes or 10 minutes after the last track <laughs> and like you just have the CD on in your car and I think you hear this <laughs> And we got, they, and got just, they had a show, Eight Hour Orphans had a show, and they're like, Nat, you want a DJ? I was like, yeah. And maybe like we do this song at the end of the set. And I think Devin was like, yeah, but Sean was all <laughs> gung ho. And then that's, that was our first real performance, man. Yeah. Uh, how, how did Devin feel about you guys starting your own thing? Devin uh, quickly, because uh, f- literally the next show we got was like, dude, we want that, the thing you do at the end, we want that. <laughs> we, and like Nat and we're like, well, we only have two songs like that. And they're like, well, you have 45 30, minutes. No, you got 30 minutes. I think we had three songs. And like, so two weeks before, they're like, you guys want to do a show? And we were like, yeah, fuck it. We're, we're going to have to write like 20 more minutes of material, 20, 20, four more minutes of material. And so we just wrote songs. And I think that's, you to know, fill think, the time. Yeah. And that's indicative. <laughs> like a comedian. I think it's indicative up. of like how we started doing our shit for 303. It was just, A, it was to have fun and rock local shows and rock parties. And, and obviously kind of for us and our friends and our families to, to smile to and dance to and have fun to. And then B, like, it was just, I think in the, in recently we've come around to like a kind of a mantra for how we were doing it at the time. I don't know if we were new at the time, but it was like kind of first thought, best thought, man. Like there wasn't time. We didn't have the training to, to necessarily work on drafting and redrafting and reworking stuff. And so it was just like, we were listening to those bands of faint, you know, I grew up listening to nine inch nails and, and kind of harder Benny Benassi electronic music and, and Lil John and stuff like that. And so created this kind of bastardized version of all that stuff and hand in hand with, the stuff that we were recording and putting up on MySpace at the time, because that was like the fledgling thing and provided uh-huh. provided an incredible forum where it was really the kind of the first forum where every band, no matter how big or small, no matter where they were from, had the same forum for music. And so 
that was that was amazingly liberating in that sense. And so we'd put that music up. And while we were conceiving the music, we were thinking about how we were going to play it live. And hand in hand, kind of, you know, the, both those things fed each other and that energy and, and wanting to make sure that the tracks would carry over to the live show that we were rocking in our local venue or in the local party or whatever. And that was that was really the, the, the kind of conception of our stuff. It was just that sense of fun, that sense of making music that was a little bit different, that had a little bit of an edge to it, that, that you know, that, that grabbed the listener in a way that was either made them smile, made them laugh, made them want to dance, made them want to fucking kill themselves. I don't know. Like it's, it's, I think it's, it's that energy that, that we wanted to capture and that we didn't know any other way to do it really. Well, the answer to your question, of- Devin uh, stopped. That was his last show. <laughs> live show. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, when we're talking about Grateful Dead and, and live shows and whatnot, what it sounds like is that you were more focused on let's create music that serves our live show. Let's create a MySpace that serves our live show. And it really wasn't about, you know, the fact that you could burn CDs was more still as a business card to play live shows. It didn't seem like you guys were very aware of the, you know, sort of record business compared to the live business. Is that right? Totally, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were both at the university and I, I, you know, I think we come from a little bit of a different perspective, but I was gearing up to go to medical school and like I got accepted to med school kind of right when we went on our first tour in 2008 and, you know, halfway through the, the tour, I was supposed to go and it was warp tour in 2008 and I was supposed to matriculate at med school in, in August. And I think it was like middle of July. And I was like, I, this is amazing. We're showing up to places we've never been before. And there's, you know, a thousand people at our set and it's, and it's crazy. And so I ended up deferring for four consecutive years while we were like, Kind what of was your the only you, time in in history where someone went, I went to warp tour and I decided <laughs> not to be a doctor <laughs> at that moment yeah, were your was your family supportive of that or were they freaked out about this decision and what kind of medicine uh well I, I mean in med school you kind of go and and get your general education before you you specify I was interested by a few things I got some dermatologists in the family my my grandfather and two of his kids are OB docs. And my, my grandfather delivered like over 20,000 babies in this town of Bayonne and southwest of, southwest of France. And so like growing up with him walking in the streets in the summer, he'd be like, it's a town of 100,000 people. It's close to, you know, what, what Boulder is. And he'd, he'd be like yeah, pointing people out and be like, hey, yeah, I, I brought him into this world. Oh yeah, her, yeah, I delivered her. I delivered her and her kids. And, That's cool. and so it was interesting. So I, I was interested by a few things, but, and, and, you know, to address your question about the family, I think my dad being a, being, you know, an academic and a university professor was a little bit hesitant at first, just because you want what's best for your kids. And you're faced with like, it's a pretty polar opposite in terms of, you know, potential stability of what you're doing and kind of a guaranteed, you know, whatever incomes, stability of life with like, a, a you know, a job that is pretty, on the on the realm of like guaranteed is pretty far on the extreme of like nothing's guaranteed and it can be hard and touring and, and stuff like that but i think you know we we have had the good fortune and i think in hindsight like the good decision making of being able to tour in a way that's positive surround being surrounded by positive people by you know the vibe the vibe of everything we want to do is 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 about inclusivity and and about doing it right and you know whether it's the the, the local kind of stagehand at a venue in Omaha, or it's or it's you know a collaborator like we've collaborated with Katy Perry or Kesha, and and it's you want to treat people well and have fun with them and 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 put smiles on people's faces. So I think that you know once that vibe became clear of what we were doing, we were doing it responsibly and 
and doing good work and, and they've been nothing but supportive and you know ever since it's I mean even at our early shows to our later shows like at the Fox venue the Fox theater here a venue like I've crowd surfed over to my dad and the first like level of the balcony and like crowd surf back and shit and the, I mean those moments are, are really some of the most amazing how many years have. how many years did you defer four man they, they were very kind every year I was like yeah I'm getting really good experience uh the kind of real world experience and um, it's going to help me in my studies. I'll admit this. I had tryouts f- to fill your spot. <laughs> I did. I had a couple of friends true? come in. Uh, yeah, it is actually. I had uh, my friend Will. 2006, right? Yeah, I had my friend Will uh, at the time, like I was just like, man, we're, you know, we had great moment. We've always like, especially early, we just had so much momentum from MySpace locally. Like it just was a constant Rise, and we were playing crazy shows. I mean, we were opening for metal, like hardcore acts, and then we'd go and open for Snoop Dogg at the Fillmore, and then we we flew into LA, and one of our first shows was opening for Bone Thugs and Harmony and Ventura, and it was just like this wild ride of of different. And then we'd play Disney, like or whatever, like Six Flags, like in the middle of the park, and they're like, "You can't say any of the words in your song." And we're just like, "Okay, we'll we played just like the gazebo <laughs> to like six moms and like nine kids, and they're like, "What?" what's going on yeah we've played them all and i just think like at the time i just remember those years being like it's like almost living like it's over at the end of this year and like for me i didn't have that same like i I always i wanted to do music i lived in new york like i was like this is what i'm gonna do regardless uh even if it's not 303 and i don't know like i think my back plan was like going back to school and and for english and doing like uh you know being a professor or something and but that was my goal. So I was like, I'm just going to ride ride this thing. And uh, it's funny. I did have some tryouts and it was just like, I was oh, like, this is not, I mean. <laughs> not good? <laughs> well, it couldn't be replaced. Like, I mean, I'm like, not, all right, we do this dance move at this part. Yeah, they're like, not we as did, tall. Like, he's they, just weren't, like, they weren't as tall. That was, the, that was the problem. No, and I think that's where we come a little bit differently. Because I think, you know, for me, music was a pure hobby. And it kind of that revelation that it could be a career and it could be something more than just having fun locally was progressive. It was that, that it took a couple of years. And I think, I mean, I'm so thankful that it did. And I think that sentiment of, of like, you know, this, this thing that's so fun for us to do really influenced a lot of, of the music that we make and still continues to, because it's like, we approached the music business without knowing anything, man. I can remember being in the studio recording our first record one and with, you know, with Matt Squire, who, I would co-produce our album with, and he was like, we were listening to a song. He's like, oh yeah, this could be your second single. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. And in my mind, I didn't know what a single, because I was DJing, so I would DJ vinyl, and I knew you, you could f- buy a single, which had the acapella and instrumental. And I was like, oh, that's, that's sick, because then you can mix it, and it's also cheaper. So if it's like for someone that doesn't want to buy the whole record, you know, it's eight bucks instead of whatever, 15 bucks. And I didn't understand that like a single was like kind of the flag bear for your whole project. And it was kind of like what you put. It, my, are you talking momentum. about at this point, you know, because I was going to ask, there's, you know, you you guys start blowing up on MySpace. You're playing all these big shows. But the first album that you do is is self-produced right before Matt Squire. Yeah. And so, that, so yeah. what? who says to you, go, go record this for real? <laughs> and then who says from that you know, I guess I'll call it a demo or self self released album. Like, who goes from there to say, "All right, now you guys are you guys are actually like an official," you know? Yeah. 
So Mike Kaminsky and Matt and Matt Squaw, uh, Galley, I would say. Yeah, but even before that, I remember I was in school. You graduated a year before me, and you went. You were in France for uh, you were teaching in France, and I remember I called you and I go, I just got a voicemail from this guy named like John Fine. Was it Fine Gold? John Fine Gold. This company was called Find Gold. And he might, I mean, shout out to John Feingold. You <laughs> got us out. on the early part of that. But I was like, I was so enamored by the idea that someone, you know, is like, listen, like we, I want to manage you and all this stuff. I, was, I almost like laughed to now. I was like, this is insane. Because we, yeah, we had the MySpace and we were selling shows. Like there's a, I mean, there's a, definitely a reason why people would be enamored by us. But then, so that sort of washed over. And then we got uh, in touch with, our agent, who's now our manager, uh, Gabe Apodaca, and then uh, Mike Kaminsky, who uh, managed us for a long time, he he flew out to Boulder. And from there, we just started like the process. Like I know we played this sort of like uh, showcase here in Boulder. And uh, at the time, a lot of labels like uh, like Warner. Uh, yeah, our buddy Kevin Kutsasu flew out. He gave and us he the- gave us the worst record <laughs> pitch we've ever had. He's like, listen, guys. It's Music a sinking industry is ship dying. Out there. I can't. I can't tell you that signing this deal with us would be a good idea. So, uh, and we're just like, all right, is that it? Are we good? Him. He's amazing to this day. He's amazing, but it's like we just. I think we were in a good spot because we just. I mean, coming from the underground hip hop world, seeing my brother like tour in a van and just like do all this stuff. Like we were like we weren't desperate to sign a big deal. I think at the time there were like some acts. There was an act out of Denver that just signed like a million dollar record deal and we were just like yeah it's cool but like we don't want to we just kind of want to keep making our money and nat's gonna go to med school so like it's not a huge deal we don't want to like break anyone's chops to get some money so then we met with matt galley in new york uh he was with uh he had started a label photo finish records and at the time it was like a subsidiary of atlantic um and he just like He's uh, Matt Galley's amazing. He just has so much energy and he's, you know, he comes from the the agent, like the booking agent world. And this was his first sort of baby. And at the time, I think he had just had like Anthony Green and a couple, uh, you know, like more like emo leaning or, or like indie type leaning bands. But he just like, I think he just got the picture from our self-release, which we recorded most of that in my parents' sauna on like a, like a boss, like a, like what was a digital like 12 track or something and it, it sounds i mean it, it makes sense because it sounds yeah you like can hear crap. it but yeah no he, he i mean galley and and our you know our manager at the time mike kaminsky and and had the relationship with with squire with matt squire who now he did panic, had done a record yeah. that we were a super fans of and that that first panic record and you know expressed interest in working with us and so that was such a great working relationship and i i man like i learned so much from working and, and producing and co-producing with matt and that he yeah i just about the recording process about kind of en- the engineering process and everything and, and treating a, an album holistically you know which i think as an artist who produces your own record it's so important to to do that and and you know they offered us a small deal i i think that like the bigger labels i don't know if there was ever a concrete like big label offer on the table and i think most of them ended up passing and matt was like hey here's a super small deal he sent out the execution copies i remember i got our our family dog at the time to sign it with her paw as well and uh then there were some revisions and they sent the contract <laughs> like back. you can't actually do that bro <laughs> but uh but yeah man it was it was straight in line with with what we were and when we were recording that first stuff i think it was you know it was the same thing it was about having fun it was about finally being in a professional studio with like a, a great engineer, a great record producer and Matt Squire and learning so much. And 
not having any expectations really. Like we were stoked that we were recording more finished products, refined products. And then, you know, just the ability to like have our friends hear that and really no kind of vision or expectation about what could or what was going to happen. Yeah, shout out Matt Galley and Matt Squire. Good guys. It, yes. Matt Squire at the time was, you know, the the hottest alt-rock producer, and it made sense. Um, we've interviewed the co-producer on the, you know, one of those first singles too, Benny Blanco. Yeah. And that really is Benny's sort of coming out party as Who? a as a <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, as a producer. Yeah. Um what is the you know? Here's this little sort of seventeen year, sixteen year old, seventeen year old oh, at the time, <laughs> and he comes in, and you guys are doing a record, and then here, like, if a seventeen year old came in, and I've, I've graduated college, you know, four years ago, you know, I'd be like, who is this kid? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit. Of, he was just amazing, though. I remember he took the train down from New York, and he he was on the train. He brought like a little backpack and his Nord lead and then we had we he had picked asked, him up outside asked, the train yeah, station we went and He's picked just... him up <laughs> on the way to pick him up we had gone to rent a juno 106 which ended up being the sounds that i played on don't trust me and it was just his just energy and it was so fun man and that's like i think that's that's reflective of what what the song was like it was just a collaborative so much fun and it does the same thing like with the music that we make for everybody it doesn't matter where you come from how old you are or whatever it was just like we just bonded and had fun over the music. Obviously, you know, we were all staying together in the in the kind of the the band bunk bed setup that uh, Squire had at the studio. I remember <laughs> at one point it flooded, and we were just kind of like walking through a couple <laughs> inches of water to get to the studio, which was funny. But yeah. but it was just fun, and it was um, you know got to be wonderful friends and and have kept that relationship working with Benny. He's he's amazing. Yeah, I remember because I lived in New York and I met him before Nat uh, before he came down to Maryland, and uh, they arranged. They're like, you got to meet this kid. He's he, here's his stuff, spank rock. And I was like, oh, I know this. Like, and so it wasn't like it was a nobody. Like we heard, we were just like, this is wild. This is like the production on this is crazy. And like, you know, this kid, they're like, he's like this savant. He like plays basically like he, he like he plays Pro Tools. Like it's like an instrument. Like he's just so fast with sampling and stuff. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna meet this kid. So like I go and have di- it's me him and and Andrew Luffman who at the time was an A and R for Atlantic and is now Benny's manager, uh, and it was just like I remember Luffman it was almost like a like a babysitting thing he's just like all right you guys have di-. like Benny and I went and sat and had dinner and I think he's like I'll be back to pick you up <laughs> and it was just like us sitting there and like I Didn't just remember- Luffman skip out on the check I. Uh, allegedly, uh, <laughs> it might've just, uh, I don't know. Luffman doesn't like me telling that story, but I don't know if it's true or not. I, the, mem- the memories get a little fuzzy, but yeah, meeting him there and then just like being like, Nat, this, we got to work with this kid. And he came down on the train. It's just like amazing. And since then we've had amazing experiences with him in different places. And, uh, yeah, he's always, he's just a homie forever, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, don't trust me is... You know, there's one thing where you've, you know, you guys at this point have been playing shows where you're opening for a lot of people, but Don't Trust Me puts you in like a whole other category. And now you guys are pop stars. And here you're an underground, like hip hop kind of like bolder, really honest lyrics, totally fun, just having parties. And then all of a sudden you guys are kind of famous. How did you guys deal with that? It was interesting, man, because it was such a progressive thing, too. I guess, you know, 
I think we ended up releasing that in June or early July of 2008 when we were on that first real tour of ours, which was Warp Tour. And then it wasn't until the next summer that it peaked at number one on Top 40 Radio, you know? And I think that whole time we were touring, so that whole time surrounded by friends, surrounded by homies, and just playing shows that were bigger and bigger, just having fun. And I think, you know, it it was never a question of, like, getting a big head about it or having time i think that because that's the character we're from it's how we were raised as people and then also there just wasn't really time to like think about it too much i think it was all just on to the next opportunity and and because we didn't know like like i said we didn't know anything like it was just every every new thing was like oh we can do that now we can do that we can play this venue we can collaborate with with katie who we'd met on warp tour in 2008 and like had so much fun with and and her you know, musicians started playing with us on our live show. And that's how we kind of started incorporating live instruments into our live show and really melded it into something. And so those just came as opportunities. And I think that, you know, also like we never got like recognized all that much. We we were the most like non-pop star pop stars. We got kicked off the red carpet at the VMAs that we were playing. Yeah, they're like, like, hey guys, this is for talent only. We're like, all right, yeah, fuck it. (laughs) We had so many experiences like that. I think even when our song was peaking at number one, we were just in this like super like divey sort of like hotel outside, like in Burbank or Studio City or something. Like it was just like, and we just, no one around, we were just like, we have a number one song. What do we do? And we're just like, hang out by the pool. And it's like, we- We got invited by our buddy, Tim, who worked with Nike and kind of focused on on music um, partnerships with Nike. And I remember he he invited us, which was amazing, dream come true for us because we're such basketball fans and grew up playing basketball. But LeBron James was was putting out his documentary at the time, like in a partnership with, through Nike. And they threw like a quote unquote celebrity basketball game, which again, I don't know why they invited <laughs> us, but it was like Chris Brown and Chris Tucker and Common and all this stuff. And like, so, and it was in the Hollywood and Highland Mall in the courtyard there. They had set up a basketball or a court. And I remember they were like introducing everybody and they're like, oh, the, this next person, blah, 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 is sold, blah, Terry blah. Cruz. Terry Crews. And that, everybody comes out and like does a little dance. And Sean and I are just sitting there just kind of sweating bullets. We're like, oh man, what are we going to do when they introduce us? They get down through everyone. And then they're just like, all right, let's start the game <laughs> without introducing us. And we're just like, you know what? That's fine. And we never... We always just thought stuff like that was funny uh, yeah. and kind of like nice to not have to be burdened with all the the shitty sides of you know of celebrity. It really hasn't been ever a big issue. For and us. also like being friends with you know Kesha and Katie around that time, like it was just such a different. Like oh our first tour abroad was with Katie Perry on uh, her Europe tour, and just like it was just such a different animal. Like I thought we we felt like really lucky to be able to just go out and get a beer and just be sort of anonymous. But like when we were with her, it was just a, there was like paparazzi. It was just like this whole thing. And I was just like, man, that's not, I, I'm not envious of that part of it at all. Yeah. I think when you can, you can say it to people a, a billion times, but being famous is not what you want. It's not what you want. You no. want to be like just under that where you get yeah. the, all the perks of being famous without totally. people staring at you while you're trying to eat breakfast if you do it out you know, in public. A hundred percent, yeah. You want fans to know who you are, but you don't want the non-fans to know and, who you are. I mean, even, even the other, well, like a couple years ago, pre, pre-pandemic, I was like out here on Pearl Street in Boulder and we, you know, in Boulder, we might get recognized a little bit more than others, but like I'm walking down the street and these these two ladies come running down the street and they they look like 
you know, their twenties, they're like, I'm like, okay, like kind of excited. And they're like, Hey, Hey, they're like, can you, can we take a, can you take a picture? And I was just like, Hey, yeah, no problem. No problem. And I take the phone, I put it in selfie mode. And I'm like right in the middle of them. And they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, Oh, like, they're like, no, can you please take a picture of us? Like in front of the statue? And I'm just like, I'm like, Oh wow. That was like the moment where I was just like, I was like, that is so oh, bad. Man. That's, that's, that says everything. Wait, I, all right, so Warp Tour is something that actually doesn't exist anymore. Most of us know yeah. what it is. But Warp Tour in its prime was as big as and probably at that time was maybe had, you know, Lollapalooza was huge in the early 2000s. And then I think the year I was playing it on tour is when they stopped the tour. And then they went and did Warp Tour became like the the touring show. And Warp Tour was massive, but it was really big when you guys were involved in it. Enough so that, you know, it really broke Katy Perry. It really broke a, like a ton of bands. Like a ton a, of artists. A, a ton, ton of artists are yeah. huge because of Warp Tour. Um, you guys found yourselves in the middle, and this is something that, you know, that book Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, where. You were born at the right time if you landed while there was a tour like Warp Tour. But even more so, in the pop world at that time, right when you guys are having a number one song, you're surrounded with, you know, Benny, but then Katy Perry, Kesha, Luke, all these people, all at the just the perfect time. Going. Getting that successful with your peers, did you guys feel like, could you feel the bubble part of what you guys were doing? Or was this something, like, did you recognize how significant this was to music worldwide? Or were you guys just sort of like, oh, no, I'm, I'm, my, my two friends are featuring on these records and they just happen to be the two biggest female pop stars. We've got the biggest producers in the world producing our records. And you're still like this Boulder band. How did you, you know, what was, what is it like in the bubble in that time? Yeah, it's, I think at the time to answer your question for me, at least, no, like it, it, you know, maybe third party for other people, like watching Katie go from playing Warped Tour to, to being the biggest artist on the planet. Yeah. Like you, you see that and, but you know, we, we still knew her as, as Katie and like seeing her at, 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 you know, festival festivals or at award shows and stuff, it was great catching up. And I, and I think at least for us, it's only been, you know, until years later that where people start telling you, being like, oh, and it's flattering. And, and I, we're not predisposed to think that way, I think. But people are like, oh, man, Don't Trust Me is amazing. And, it, you know, it really brought something new to pop music or whatever, the, the sound and the and the thematics and the, the kind of playfulness of it. But I think that at the time it was just like, like I said, we were just kind of had heads down, surrounded by friends. We'd get off tour come home you know sean would go back to new york and and come or and i'd come home and you know would would be having dinner with my parents and and talking with my homies here and and like i think that balanced sense of life in, in retrospect is amazing because it you know it allowed us to focus on the work focus on the vibe of what we were doing and not get caught up in any of the other stuff that that might have detracted from that or might have been harder to deal with and i think that you know we you you, you kind of i don't know for us for us it was always about the music and the shows and making sure that those were as fun as possible, that they, you know, working 16 hour days in the studio when we were making those records, having fun doing it and feeling like we were 
like being productive and having fun and not not getting you know not getting bogged down like like with other things that could be detracting from that vibe of just open creativity and inclusiveness and and having fun you guys ended up working with Lil John also at that time, who was at the time the biggest rapper. So you really, you guys were checking it all off. But the the next thing on the resume that's really intriguing to me, um, Nat, is, you know, Love Somebody for Maroon 5 becomes, uh, you know, it's a, it's a smash, but it's not for 303. That's probably, it's a different experience. When you're saying not being distracted and stuff, once you start seeing what it is to write a song and not have to be the one who tours, how does that change your perspective of songwriting? Man, it's 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 amazing. Um, and on the broader level, I think having the having the external, you know, as we refer to it, kind of external songwriting, as in writing for and with other artists or other projects, whether it be you know music for. TV shows or video games or, or movies or, you know, pop artists directly. I think it provides such a great balance with your own artistry because, you know, for the things, that, the pitfalls that you might have in each one kind of even each other out a bit. Whereas, you know, with, as you guys know, writing for other, especially for other pop artists, it's a lot of speculating, man. It's like mining for gold. Like you write a lot of material and the vast majority of it, it doesn't go anywhere. And, you know, you can be fortunate to get a, a very small handful of, of songs cut and, and from there released and from there, you know, have success. But I think things are much more tangential in in your own writing of being able to, like, be creative and and have and, and if you like it, release it and, and have people hear it. But like having, yeah, on Love Somebody, it's an amazing experience. I remember... You know, working with Ryan Tedder, we, we got I got hooked up with Ryan because Ryan was still in Colorado at the time, and and my publisher Amanda um, Berman, Amanda Berman Hill at Sony was like, "Hey, I want to hook up with with Ryan because I was living in Colorado and he was too." And so went to go work, and and you know, in an afternoon created the the kind of the instrumental for that with Ryan, um, and then it kind of was just sat there for a year, and then he called me up and he's like, "Hey, it's going to be a Maroon Five song. I've been in the studio with Maroon Five. I was like, "Shit, all right." <laughs> But, and then watching it do what it did, yeah, uh, you know, to your point, as kind of watching that from afar rather than being in it every single day is, it's it's amazing in a, in a different way. And there's certain things, you know, it's all it's all music and it's all appreciating the art and, and stuff, but it, it definitely is a different experience and, and one that is equally and differently rewarding. And, and being able to, you know, I went and saw them live while they were kind of on that overexposed tour i know you you had did some work for that record too and like seeing it live as well is just it's it's so satisfying in a, in a completely different way hearing that song on the radio is different than hearing your own like a 303 song on the radio for me it's it's different but equally i don't know i guess it's like when people say they love things differently but equally Side note, I know this is your story uh, and not mine, but my mom just posted a picture from that overexposed tour because that was the first time where I had uh, a song with a band that they would even go see. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And it was yeah. like, you know, front row seats kind of thing, you know, and they got to see it. They got to see my song live. And that was sort of a, a mm. moment. Still, yeah. it, it took years until I think, I, you know, it was really hard to convince my dad that, no, I don't want to be in artist right now i just want to write songs for other people sure. that even if i if you sell out the troubadour that's success 
But if you have a song with another artist, it was like hard to understand that that has any value, you know. Um, but you know, when you it's it's it helps when they can see these songs live and see how big they are. But you guys also had a song with you know Ariana Grande right in the beginning of her becoming Ariana. You know, it's like you guys really were involved in the songwriting community. Why why even bother going through the stress of being in a band? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think songwriting to me, it's like basketball. It's like a game of runs. Like you do have, I think about that early time, it, we were batting a very high average. Like we worked with Lil John or Kesha and like the song would get cut and we were just like, man, this is easy. <laughs> Let's just keep doing this. Uh, but it's really not. I mean, I think when we started to hang our hats like on, you know, fully immersing ourselves and I think we were like, you know, this, how sustainable is, because we were out on the road like we barely would be home I th- like what was it like three years straight we were just like straight on the road and like would just touch ground to catch our breath and get back out and it's really hard I mean touring no matter what like whether it's one-offs or if you have the luxury I mean obviously a lot of people are still out there in vans and and doing it in cars and stuff like you know even if you have the luxury of a bus like you're still in a basically a submarine with 10 other people that you can reach out and touch at any moment with, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it can be, uh, really a lot. So I think the songwriting part was something that we were like, you know what, let's, uh, let's diversify and, and, and lean into this a little bit more. And I think that's when I sort of met you, Ross and Joe, and is when I started to really, you know, I moved to LA from New York and I was like, I'm going to really lean into this. And, I I did realize how hard how much hard work it is and like Nat said speculative especially uh you know on the songwriting part of it and not necessarily on the production part although that's a different animal but it's like you know you're in these rooms and my friends would be like man you got to work for this artist or that like how much did they pay you and you're like well nothing until the song <laughs> gets cut and sees money and I don't think they understood that they're like what do you mean you so like and so you do this work for free yeah so it's a different animal i think what nat said is like the pros and cons of like of having the control of your own band and what you want to put out uh and what you write and can kind of like you know steer your ship a little bit more versus the there's only so much you're in control of as a songwriter it's and been I think, amazing with 303 like i think one of the reasons that we keep doing it a because it's so fun and we love doing it and it's such a creative outlet and it balances that songwriting but also it's like We've managed to to just keep being productive, especially with live shows, you know, and transition from doing tours to to playing a lot of shows for colleges and universities and playing for the military, you know, domestically and all over the world. Um, and I think that, like, I don't know how or why. I think we've been waiting for that. You referred to the bubble, you know, earlier. I think we've been waiting for that to burst for a long time. But for some reason, we've been able to to write it out. And now when we go play colleges, which is amazing because it really reminds us of when we were in school and when we started making music and, and we had such great experiences in school, being students and also working on music and having it be this hobby that developed into a career. I think Back before iPhones. Yeah, yeah. But you, you know, we'll talk to kids and they'll be like, yeah, we were, you know, we were 10 years old when Don't Trust Me came out and we were, you know, or we were in middle school and that was our jam. And it's just amazing to, it's amazing to be able to, we were talking earlier about not really having perspective while we were 
really in the crux of our of, of kind of the acme of, of our touring and stuff like that. I think we've been able to get some time and have some perspective, and that's so rewarding, man, to be able to do that. Does it help to live in Boulder instead of LA? For I mean, obviously, Sean, I know you're kind of back and forth, but you know. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's I think you know I'm back and forth to we have a place in LA now too, and I think. It, for sure, it's different. Um, but, you know, there, there's there's great people everywhere, and we have great friends in L.A. and stuff, too. But, yeah, there's something in Boulder, you know, it's a, it's a town of 100,000 people. For a town of 100,000, like, it's pretty it's pretty plugged into things that are important, you know, in terms of yeah. activism and vibe and, and collectivity and, and, you know, something that I think we've, as a community, we've benefited from in the, the recent tragedy here is that people are are very collective thinking, they're progressive thinking, they're they're engaged with the community and, and uh, yeah, for sure, man. And I think it's on my side, I know on Sean's side too, our families are so close knit and family, family and friends is, or it's just so, if there's anything that's gonna, that's gonna keep you, you know, positive and, and, and happy and grounded and productive. I think it's, it's those people. You know, you guys have, you guys are now signed to feel by ramen. You guys have gone through a number of phases how much of what you do now is based in the live show again, which I know is complicated in quarantine um, or in, in a pandemic, I should say. I don't know if we're all in quarantine anymore, but you know, how much of what you do is based in, in, in live shows in the plan of that versus now that you've experienced of doing professional writing as well, how much of it's based in sales and yes yeah i mean we're adding to that phase because we're actually full circle back with uh, a photo finish actually uh we released our last album night sports how many years ago four years ago now with fuel by yeah and now we're just gearing oh, up wow. uh to release our our album need with uh photo finish with matt galley and crew again so it's kind of really yeah, it's a fun return to form. They're they're an amazing team and it's just a great partnership that we're back with. But yeah, to answer your question, I think for us it's like I think we I don't know. Like it's it's funny and and I don't know if 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 this speaks to you too, but it's like you learn so much about the business, but at some points when it comes to music, like you do have to like try to forget uh and I think you can get back into that because like Nat and I, I think we came back, we came to Photo Finish with maybe like 50, 40 something, 50 songs that we were like, listen, can you help us just go through this and get perspective and like see what we want to do? Like this is shit, this one sucks. <laughs> and this you know, bad. you know, it's like we just kind of like put our heads down like Nat said and don't get too bogged down with like just writing the perfect song over and over. But at some point, it is kind of important. I think when we sort of like partnered with them, there was a new energy and we wrote a lot of the songs on the album after we uh, partnered with Photo Finish. And it just because we had like it, it was this new era for us. And I think when you come from a place like a time and place and energy, like it definitely can, it, it can be represented in the work that you do, the body of the work, rather than just sort of Frankensteining it from a lot of different pieces. So I think that was important for us, but then, then we get into the nuances. That's why we wanted to work with photo finishes. Cause like they are like every, like we can get on a, a zoom call with them 
any other day and just talk about like switch up our marketing plan, our timeline any second. It's not as rigid as it used to be. I feel like we used to have to set up a single for months and you put all your money and you played all these radio shows. And if it didn't sail, I mean, it was like a lot of weight put on that one song. And I think now there's just different ways to cut it and, and creative ways. And I think it's back to being fun in that capacity because I think there was a lot of pressure on just everything lining up. I mean, the song could be great for any artist and it just could not line up or be the right time or place. So it's, uh, I think as an artist and uh, with this team, it's like we can look at those things from a business perspective. We are missing the live component. I mean, that has always been so such a big part of us to like test out even new songs to see how they react to see, Oh, this bridge is, we should make this only, you know, eight bars. Like, why is this so long? Why is it 254 bars? <laughs> you know, why are we jamming? Grateful Dead I've jamming. been way too much in the Grateful Dead, but like, uh, you know, you learn those things. And I think we've, we've had some virtual shows and we're in Nat's basement with like a fog machine and we have these animatronic laser. Shout wolves. out to my brother. Cause I gave him that fog machine for his birthday and then I stole it right back. <laughs> and it's funny because it's just me and him down there. And, uh, you know, even after, uh, his, his wife will be like, Oh, I heard you like, you know, like it will be like eight, 8 PM. And she'll be like, Oh, you, this part sounded good. Like from the basement, <laughs> we're just like, thank you. Like other than that, just performing to, like this to a computer screen and it's just different, but we still have fun doing it. I think the live part for me uh, is is definitely like the one of the most fun parts for me. Like I just love getting out there and interacting. Like it makes me feel alive and part of something, you know. For this final segment, we're gonna do uh, a five for five. I'm gonna list five things and just tell me if it sparks joy maybe that's the wrong thing just tell me what comes out the top of your mind <laughs> is this uh marie kondo or whatever yeah. <laughs> uh let's start with mac galley ripping down a wiener sh- no burger Wendy. king sign at one of our shows in colorado and also jumping on stage and doing a front flip into the crowd <laughs> That's insane. I can't do a front flip into a pool, let alone into a group of humans. I don't know if he executed it very well, but it was <laughs> but he's the intention. The intention was impressive. He's a, a blazing ball of energy and uh and it's he's such a good guy to have on on your team. I think he'll he'll go he'll go and uh he's got tons of ideas and he'll also, you know, he's not afraid of of pursuing them, so Let's go with the Los Angeles music scene. Come out to LA, write some songs, get real famous, then lose it all. <laughs> is, that, is that an original? Yeah, that's a, that's that's. See, that's what we do, man. We just freestyle. Oh, yeah, that's that what we dope. do. That's what we're releasing these days. That's like yeah. that's what we're about to release. That's our new our new album. Yeah. LA music scene, uh, it's just so, I feel like it's just become, for me, it's like, it's so many more friendships than like, I feel like I wanted to take advantage of like working with the people I already know that are homies to me, but I still end up in a studio with someone new (laughs) every time. I mean, before when I could, like I would just be with new people all the time. And it's, I think, I think there's just a balance. Like, I think there's so many people in LA, there's so many artists and I think it's amazing. But, uh, I think sometimes, I guess overwhelming for me sometimes. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, but to Sean's point, man, it's, you know, some of, I think some of individually and collectively 
for us, like some of our best friends have come out of writing songs in LA. And I think, you know, working at Kia, it can be a grind, man. There's so many people working and there's so many good people working, which lends itself to like, you know, a lot of competition for songs and stuff. But it's also, I think we're, every every time I start to like feel something, I always kind of kick myself and being like, man, we work in a in an industry that is by far dominated by interesting people, dynamic people, people from different backgrounds, people who are fun and funny and creatively really, really talented and 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 really progressive and on the whole, like really interesting people, man. So it's, uh, I think that's, that's really something that's so positive about being able to work in music. Yeah, comparison is the thief of joy. Uh, mm. The, I think it's Teddy Roosevelt or uh, the uh, or the Blue Man Group. Energy <laughs> the Blue Man Group. I de- actually, Ryan Tedder is the one who told he, he he used to say compare and despair, and I just and, and so it must be something that you guys are taught in Colorado. So, but Ross, <laughs> Ross, you I know you and Joe got some cuts on that latest Blue Man Group record. Right? Oh, dude, that I it's like I only take my pipes from my actual back. <laughs> I cut into our plant. And yo, were your parents front row at that show too? Yeah, they, that's actually one that they could get behind. Um, Boulder, Colorado. Man, that's a rich one. Uh, Flatirons. I mean, it's just to me, I, I walk, you can't, I mean, if the minute you realize you've been here too long, it was when you're like, you just forget to look out and see the, the like Flatirons because they just stare you right in the face. They're amazing. They're majestic. Yeah, it's a great place. Great. Um, you know, has been known to be a very progressive, very open, very forward-thinking place for a long time. And there, there's a reason for that and good people. And, and you know, for, for me, it's especially family and friends, man. The last two, uh, Nat, this is to you, Sean Foreman. Sexy, sexy boy, sexy boy with grateful dead socks. Uh, Sean Foreman is a great friend and we, let's go with the first one. (laughs) Sexy boy. No, we, um, you know, we, we were joking around about it earlier, but we actually formally met at the university, um, in that physics class and bonded over underground hip hop. And like, he had seen me make like these weird DIY videos on public access TV and, and really started working on music as part of our friendship pretty immediately. And it's never stopped and great guy. Great facial hair, great mustache. He can flex out a beard very fast, which is very sick. Um, and extremely talented, wonderful man. Sexy. Sean Foreman. Wouldn't it be weird if I asked you to all? I know. <laughs> yeah, Sean Foreman. <laughs> Nat Motti. Maybe it's Sean Foreman. Sean Foreman. Sean Foreman is Nat Motti. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ha- hold big. on, hold on. I'm going to look straight at you. Big, uh, big heart. Big shoes. Full heart, clear eyes. Uh, yeah, big warm heart. He's got a big old warm heart. He cares about anyone that's, he's very loyal and uh, supportive. Um, and he was early uh, on to innovate um, the game of basketball because I was always like, man, you're 6'8, why don't you post up more? He was just first to, uh, you know, to change the game up and be one of these new uh, centers that can kind of, you know, Thank, uh, that's mid-range so game, shoot up. Yeah, I mean, you definitely innovated the game of basketball for everyone, so thank you. Thank, at least in our, our Kevin Katsas' pickup basketball <laughs> league. <laughs> thank you. That's very kind of you. Uh, well, 
thank you guys for being on and the writer is uh you know obviously we kind of all came up around the same time and are part of the same group so it it's just one of those things where we wanted to do this podcast initially just to ask people in real time what it's like to be musicians in real time and not have it be a documentary about what it was like back in the day. And just to have gone through, you know, this career alongside with certain people is, it's just amazing to see how people survived, succeeded, chose to do different kinds of things, lived in different places, focus on touring, focus on albums, focus on writing. But we're all, you know, most of us are former members of bands and kept it going, didn't keep it going, whatever it is. And to see that you guys are still together, still loyal, you know, still friends with the same people that we're all still friends with, it just feels like home. And it's so good to have conversations with people who just feel like home. And in an industry where there's so many, there's so many people where we all know all the junk, you know, but in reality, it's what Nat said. It's like a lot of our best friends, not just, not just best collaborators, but best friends are people that we meet in sessions and from being on the same albums from do, you know, we're all just, much closer than we realize, you know, and it's just good to have these conversations to remind us that there's, there's a safe place in the writing community to be weird and be songwriter, (laughs) the artists, you know? Absolutely, man. Well, thank you guys so much. Thanks to you and Joe for, for doing what you do. It really is an honor and a pleasure for us to be on. And and thanks for, you know, all the, uh, you know, I think maybe at this point you guys are getting a little bit of perspective to be able to like reflect on the body of work that you guys are doing, doing this podcast and mm. providing inspiration and instruction and, and kind of, you know, uh, for a lot of other songwriters and people in the music business and, and people who aren't. And I think that, you know, your, your advocacy is, is honorable. And um, if we do, if I decide to go to med school and we, we're holding tryouts, Sean's holding tryouts, I think, you know, Ross, you could be the first on the list maybe. I know they're tough tryouts, but you got to get the dance moves right. <laughs> I was actually thinking because we're going to have a kid that if you went back to med school that you were trying to say that we'd be first on the list to do <laughs> Bro, I, well, hey, I could get fast track. Usually that takes about seven or eight years, but I could try to get it done in however many months you got left. And, and congratulations, future congratulations, by the way. Exactly. That's amazing. All right, guys, thanks. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.